you to turn to uh, Numbers chapter 15, have that passage kind of ready, as we'll be coming to it in a moment. Let's just have a word of prayer together and commit this time of study to our Lord. Thank you, Father, for your provision for our every need. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you and serving you. What a joy it is to come into your presence and realize that that access is available to us because blood was shed and because of the intercessory work of a risen Lord. Thank you now for the privilege again of considering your word. We just pray that your hand of blessing may rest upon this time together, be glorified in all that is said and done. We'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to do something a little different tonight. I'm going to save 10 minutes at the end of our time together because we want you to have a chance to hear from Dave Crane. Dave is our missionary in Trinidad with the Evangelical Alliance Mission, and he was to be here on Friday night for a potluck and a fellowship together, and we'll be unable to be here and remain and so, therefore, uh, we want to give him an opportunity. So, uh, we'll be doing that at the end of our time together tonight and uh, save a little time there for him to greet you and share briefly about what the Lord is doing in his life and experience. Also, I uh, think perhaps we should uh, share with you some very exciting news, and that is that this week, Meant to Last came. And uh, we'll have them available on the book table during the Dallas conference. And we're just very pleased and very happy. Um, we wish, in a way, now that it would have been here last Sunday when Dr. Ryrie was here, so we could have celebrated. This is the book that Dr. Ryrie and I have written together. And um, we believe that God's going to use it in a special way. We hope you'll pray to that end. And uh, you'll have a chance to get a copy if you wish next uh, week. We appreciate so much the, the good work that Victor Books have done on the book, and uh, we just want to encourage you uh, to uh, get a few copies for your friends and so on so that you'll be able to help people in this very critical area of uh, the permanence of marriage. And so uh, we'll have them available, and we trust you'll, you'll get out there and uh, help us get rid of them in a hurry so that... Uh, Lots of people read the message. That's our main concern, really, that people read the message and that it stir up a little bit of the follow ground in this particular area. Dave, I just had announced we're going to have you on in the last 10 minutes or so tonight, so uh, we haven't preempted you just because I'm going to launch into this. I think it's critical, though, that we, we finish this, this uh, particular topic in terms of presumption Remember, we're talking in these days about some of the grave clothes of the old life, some of the things that are carryover habits from the life that we have, we have uh, had before we knew Jesus Christ, and sometimes those things that we just practice without thinking, even in our Christian lives. We talked about pride, and now we're talking about that that's related to pride, even this matter of presumption. And uh, even as pride is an independent spirit, that seeks to do things apart from God. So presumption is an attitude that people have 
that they are able to use their own reasoning and their own mind and uh, determine what ought to be done rather than paying attention clearly to what God has said. It's an attitude that despises God's word. It's, it's probably best defined by that little phrase that you find in uh, Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. Leaning to your own understanding is really presumption. The presumption is that I know that as well as anybody else, including God. We may not say it that way because that would sound a little bit uh, harsh and sacrilegious, but nevertheless, that's what it boils down to. And so there's a number of illustrations of the sin of presumption throughout Scripture. The false prophets presumed that their message was as authentic as Scripture. The uh, rabbinical traditions that came primarily in the writing of the, the uh, Mishnah and the Talmud were really presumptions, presumptions that, that uh, the things written in the law needed their expertise and uh, extra interpretation so that the people could understand them fully. There's a lot of presumption in ecclesiastical circles the same way today. Uh, Nehemiah talked about those that in the nation of Israel uh, that, uh, or excuse me, the, the, the Egyptians, Pharaoh in particular, that acted presumptuously with the people of Israel. He got burned because, uh, after all, um, he knew that his gods were as good as the God of Israel, and he presumed that he could get away with what he was doing in oppressing the people. Uh, we talked, remember, about the, the uh, great days of Hezekiah and how the, uh, the man from Sennacherib's uh, army came into Israel and said, look, We've got the God of the valley on our side. You have the God of the mountains. We're going to fight in the valley, so you better capitulate. He presumed that their God was good enough, and uh, some of the people presumed that too. Fortunately, Hezekiah felt fir uh, uh, was, was uh, holding firm. In any event, it's very important that we, that we learn not to be presumptuous. So we looked at the law of presumption in num Numbers chapter 15. I want to look at it just again. And remember we talked about Nadab and Abihu. We talked about, about uh, David and assuming that the method that the Philistines used to move the, move the ark was good enough. And he presumed that one method is as good as another. He was presumed wrong, very sincere, but sincerely wrong. But uh, that was presumption. Now in Numbers chapter 15, there's a law of presumption, which we looked at a little bit last week. We said there were two major passages. This is the first of them. Verse 30 of Numbers 15, but the person who does anything, New American Standard has changed the word to defiantly. It's our word zaid, the word for presumption, as opposed to zadon, the word for pride. It's, it's a connected word, but it's clearly a different sin. And the word is presumptuous rather than defiantly, although defiance is involved. The person who does anything presumptuously whether he is native or alien, or one, uh, that one is blaspheming the Lord. Now, now, get a hold of this for a minute. You've got a method that Scripture says is wrong, but it works. And you choose that method because others have used it and it worked. You might as well use it since it works, but it's contrary to Scripture. 
Now this text says to do such a thing is blasphemy against the Lord. So if you're going to be fair about this, when you decide to lean on your own understanding, be, be fair, all right? And just say what it is. Say, all right, today I'm going to blaspheme the Lord. Now that's kind of scary. It's very difficult for you to do that because nobody wants to blaspheme the Lord. But we can do those things knowing from Scripture they blaspheme the Lord and go right ahead and do them as long as we avoid scriptural terminology. See how tricky it all is? It says here it blasphemes the Lord. And that person shall be cut off among the people. There's judgment involved. Why? Why is it blasphemy? I'll tell you why. Because when God has spoken and you decide to do the opposite thing, you have despised the word of the Lord. That's the presumptuous sin. And you have broken his commandments. And that person shall be completely cut off and his guilt shall be on him. You can take the consequences. God's not going to bail you out. And you see, all around us we have people doing this. And you do it. And I do it. And it's a carryover from that old life. Because that's the way we used to operate. Using our own thinking, our own skills, like Naaman. We gave you the illustration last week. He says, behold, I thought, big deal what he thinks. God has spoken. When he put himself in the Jordan River, dipped him down the seventh time, came up clean, he said, behold, now I know. Well, we as believers of all people should begin with the premise, I know what God said, therefore I'll obey it. Not, I know what God said, but I've got a better idea. That's precisely what we do. Our guilt will be upon us. Now that's presumption. That's the sin of presumption. It despises the word of God. Nadab and Abihu had instructions from the Lord. The Lord said, go this far and no further. Do this and no more. And they came in, they thought, well, let's see. God said that we're going to uh, we're going to burn incense here. It's obvious God's forgotten. Because there's supposed to be fire to burn incense. One fire is as good as another fire, isn't it? Well, they found out it wasn't. And they sinned the sin of presumption. They presumed they could go ahead and use their own fire, and the fire destroyed them. The sin of presumption. Now, David and the ark is another illustration, and I think that, that just to reiterate that again, his plan ignored God's clear direction as to how the ark should be moved. The method of the world in moving the ark, the Philistines, in moving the ark on an ox cart, even though it was a new ox cart, did not cut it. The fact that they succeeded in moving the ark still didn't cut it. When David, the man of God, wanted to move the ark for a perfect, perfectly proper motive, because God's ark should be in his house. Nothing wrong with that. But when they decided to do it, Uzzah died, because he presumed he could move it in the way the world did. Beware. It just isn't so. Now, turn to uh, Psalm 19 with me. Psalm 19, along with Psalm 119 is the psalm of the law, or the psalm of the Bible, the psalm of God's Word. You're very familiar with it. In the first six verses, there is a clear picture of the characteristics of natural revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and so on. 
And then in verse 7, it begins to describe the Word of God as special revelation. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Now it was Emerson that said concerning natural revelation that all that I have seen teaches me to trust the Creator who I've never seen. You learn a lot about God by seeing nature. But you learn much more about God by going to His Word. And there's a clear description of all of the aspects of the Word. By the way, if you want to understand Psalm 119, then you want to, first of all, understand Psalm 19. Because the words that are used to describe God's Word in Psalm 119 are not explained there. They are in Psalm 19. The purpose of the law of the Lord and its description is here. The law of the Lord is perfect. It has the powers of perfecting is the idea. It has the power to perfect. And what does it do? It restores the soul. Okay? Then the testimony of the Lord, which are all the illustrations of the Old Testament, are sure. I have to wonder about them. They are solid ground. They're absolutely infallible. All right? They make wise the simple. You're dealing with a person who is in... Why do we tell Bible stories to children? You ever think of that? There's a theological reason. It's right here. Pethe, the word for simple, means impressionable, flexible. Children are impressionable, flexible. How do you communicate truth to them? By telling them the testimonies of Scripture. What are the testimonies of the Scripture? They are the Bible stories, the illustrations that God gives. Red lights, green lights, telling us how men lived, how they blew it. We teach those stories to children. There's nothing wrong with that. They're impressionable. And they're good. I'm not going to get into an exegesis of this whole thing because I get off the track here, okay? Precepts of the Lord are right. Commandments of the Lord are pure. Fear of the Lord is clean. Judgments of the Lord are true. They're more desirable. Those judgments are more desirable than gold. Yea, the much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey. The drippings of the honeycomb, moreover, by them, thy servant is warned in the keeping of, of them. There is great reward. All right? Now watch them. Reading the Word of God leads the writer to a new level of commitment and position. It says, who can discern his errors? How can I understand myself? Acquit me of hidden faults when I'm doing things I shouldn't, but I don't know I'm doing it. Please, Lord, acquit me of that. Don't put a judgment on me when I'm doing something ignorantly. That's one kind of sin. The nation of Israel, there are all kinds of sacrifices available readily for those who sin ignorantly. But did you know there was no sacrifice for another kind of sin? You thought the sacrifice covered all sins, right? No, sorry. The presumptuous sin in the Old Testament was not covered by sacrifice. Therefore, the writer says this, also, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. God, don't let me blow it. Don't let me do that presumptuous thing which is blasphemy against you and which shows a despising of the Word of God. Don't let me do that. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Don't let them dominate me. Why? Because you see, friends, get this. The unbeliever is dominated by the sin of presumption. The unbeliever, that's the only way he can think. He cannot think any other way. All he knows is what he can see. 
He has to live with his senses because he has no sense of God and he has no commitment to the Word of God. But the believer is supposed to have a commitment to the Word of God. Don't let me copy them. Let me follow what your Word has said because the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. If all of these things are true, that the Word of God is right and pure and solid and that which we can trust, then why should I decide to do something that is contrary to Scripture? Now, we live in an age where this is not a popular concept. Doing things contrary to Scripture are common for even Christian people. Or going beyond the, the simple, the simplicity of the truth of God into something that may not be touched on in Scripture directly, but is certainly touched on in principle. I fear for our generation. Because we've played so fast and loose with God. I read verses like, The Lord knows them that are His, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And yet I see people flirting with iniquity in the church today. Thinking, oh well, you know, I've seen other Christians do that. There didn't seem to be any problem. Why can't I do it? That's presumption. Just because God doesn't judge you now doesn't mean he likes the sin anymore. It's like the old farmer, you know, that decided he was going to show the Christian farmer what he could do in defiance of God. He uh, planted his crop on Sunday, plowed the field on Sunday, made all of the preparations on Sunday, took care of it on Sunday, reaped it on Sunday, and that piece of property reaped twice what the Christians did. He came over and he gloated a little bit. said, my goodness, look at this. Your God certainly doesn't much care that I violated Sunday, which is another story. I'll talk about that some other day. But anyway, the farmer, not understanding fully the theology concerning the Sabbath and concerning Sunday and the Lord's Day and all of that, because I personally believe God could care less that the unsaved farmer did that. But nevertheless, he says, see, my crop was bigger than your crop, even though I did it in defiance of God. The farmer said something very wise, however, in the illustration. He said, one thing, sir, that you have to learn is, God does not always settle his accounts in October. Right? You see, to think that God must settle his accounts in October is just as presumptuous as the other. The fact that he was not judged did not mean a thing. God doesn't have to follow our time schedule or our calendar year or our fiscal year to bring in blessing or judgment. So get out of that habit of thinking that way. God's not bound by your ideas. That's presumption. But you see, he says these presumptuous sins tend to rule over me. Don't let, don't let that happen. Then shall I be blameless and be acquitted of the great transgression. Keep me from presumptuous sins. Then he says that beautiful statement we all know. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, all of them, every word I speak, every thought I think, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. See what I'm saying? 
It's a sin of presumption. Now, to honor God's word is to not rely on our feelings, our knowledge, our training, or, heaven forbid, the counsel of the ungodly. In Deuteronomy 17, there's something else that alludes to this. Not as clear as those other two passages, but certainly something that needs to be considered in the process of things. So turn to Deuteronomy 17, beginning at verse 9. Let me read it in the King James, and you can follow whatever translation you have. Thou shalt come unto the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge that shall be in those days, and inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. And thou shalt do according to that sentence which they of that place, which the Lord shall choose, shall show thee. Now this is a part of the whole sacrificial system. You want to find out what you should do. In a particular case, in the nation of Israel, you had to go to a priest, all right? And you say to the priest, all right, what do I do? Now, the priest checks the law, because the law wasn't available to everybody. And the priest will tell you, okay, now, for this sin, you give this sacrifice. For this sin, you give this sacrifice. This is what you do, all right? So they were, if you please, the word of God for the people in that day. We don't have any such position today. I can't tell you what you must do. God already tells us what has been done and how you appropriate it. So, in essence, to follow this law in modern days, particularly in New Testament days, is a matter of simply obeying what God has given us in his word, all right? So pick up that equivalency as we're moving through this. It says, and thou shalt do according to the sentences, verse 10, which they of that place which the Lord shall choose shall show thee. And thou shalt observe to do according to all that they inform thee. They tell you to do it, you do it, all right? According to the sentence of the law, which they shall teach thee, according to the judgment which they shall tell thee, thou shalt do. Thou shalt not decline from the sentence. If you don't like the sentence, tough. Okay? Thou shalt not decline from the sentence which they shall show thee to the right hand or to the left. You don't deviate from it one iota. Look at verse 12. And the man that will do presumptuously, now put an equal sign in there, because he's going to tell you what presumption is in this case, and will not hearken unto the priest that standeth to minister there before the Lord thy God or unto the judge, even that man shall die. And thou shalt put away the evil from Israel. Now why in the world would you, would you have a death sentence upon a man who comes to the priest, he wants to offer a right sacrifice, the priest says you offer an ox, and the man says, no, no, I want to offer a lamb. And he offers a lamb instead of an ox. Why should that man die? I'll tell you why. It's an object lesson. Look at the next verse. And, and all the people shall hear and fear and do no more presumptuously. You see, Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts sinned a presumptuous sin. They presumed that they could put on a show in what they gave and not give the whole price. And they had good rationalization. It sounded real good on paper. But they died anyway. And what happened to the church? It was purified. Because they saw what the sin of presumption could bring. There's another illustration, and I'm just giving you a few of these uh, random uh, so that you'll have them. 
You can think about them and study them further yourself. Esther, chapter 7. Ezra and Nehemiah Esther. In Esther, chapter 7, and verse 5. Now, before we do that, we'd better talk about what happened here. Let's read verse 1. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also as they drank wine at the banquet, Where is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. What's your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, if it please the king, let my life be given me as my petition. She says, you, you said you'd give me half the kingdom. All I want is to live because my life's in jeopardy. Why was her life in jeopardy? You know? Because Haman had made a decree in the king's name that all the Jews were to be killed, and she was a Jewess. So let my life be given me as a petition, and my people as my request. I want to live, and I want my people to live. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. It's a matter of putting us into slavery. We've had a lot of that in our history. That's no big deal. For the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. If they just sold us as slaves, that's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> if they just sold us as slaves, I wouldn't have bothered you with it. Because that's not a big enough problem. The big problem is when they're going to annihilate the people. Now listen to what he says. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would presume to do thus? And Esther says, uh, this is this guy sitting at the table with us, Haman. And the king says, hang him. Hang him. Boy, that was a quick way out. But that was presumption. Who would presume to do this? Well, it was not only a presumption against the king, it was also a presumption against God. Numbers chapter 14, we just mentioned this. Numbers chapter 14, it tells the people after they've been told that they could not enter the land. Do you remember that story? They came to Kadesh Barnea, and God said to them, and people are funny, you know, they really are. God, when the ten spies brought back the poor report, Caleb and Joshua brought back the good report, the, the people said, there's no way we can go in. God, even with you, we can't do it. There are too many problems. We're going to go back to Egypt. And God said, all right. You won't go back to Egypt, but you're going to wander in the wilderness. And the people said, oh yeah, we're going to go in. <laughs> God just told them to go in, they wouldn't go in, but when God told them not to go in, they're going to go in. It's ridiculous. But guess what? It says that they were presumptuous. They were presumptuous. In fact, it's mentioned in Deuteronomy uh, 1, I think. Deuteronomy chapter 1. I check this out here. It's verse verse thirty-five. Is that it? Forty-three. Verse forty-three. So I spoke to you, but you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord. There it is again. Rebelled against the commandment of the Lord equals acted presumptuously and went up into the hill country. They got whopped, if you remember the story. 
Exodus 21, verse 14, it talks about the man who takes the law in his own hands in the nation of Israel. When he does that, he does something presumptuously. But there's one illustration that I want to finish up with tonight, and it's probably the most classic illustration of presumption in the Bible. And it really relates to us in a very clear way. We turn with me to Judges, the book of cycles, Judges chapter 13. You know, in the book of Judges, what happened was the people sinned, and God sent a conqueror, and they conquered the people, and then the people in their being conquered rebel, re, repented, and God sent a deliverer, and then the people went out and sinned some more, and then they went through the whole cycle again. That's the whole book of Judges. You change from a thief to a generous individual. You work hard and you give a portion of what you earn by hard work, you give it away. Believe me, when people are become generous, they are no longer thieves. You have to be certain that you change the pattern of living. Now, it goes on. and This is one of those cycles. The people are in distress. Years have gone by where they've been under this great pressure and oppression of the Philistines. And God produces another judge. Instead of producing him out of the adult population, he has him born. He's a special vessel of the Lord. He is a man set aside with the very strict Nazarite vow. All kinds of regulations. He wasn't to cut his hair because it was a sign of the, the tremendous need of the people. The, the long hair on the man was a shame to him, and he was under shame. He was under the shame of the rebellion of the people, and the hair represented not the, the rebellion of the Nazarite, but the rebellion of the people. Uh, he couldn't drink any wine, but not only couldn't drink any wine, he couldn't even touch a, a grape off the, the vine, because grape uh, juice was was a picture of joy, and this man was a picture of a man in mourning. This was the, the picture of the Nazarite vow. And here he was committed to this Nazarite vow from his youth. His parents set him aside for that. All through his life he was instructed as to what the Nazarite vow was all about. And uh, the, the history of, of uh, Samson uh, begins in verse 1. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. And then the background of his life comes in verse 2 where it talks about the Nazarite vow clear down through verse 5. And God promised that through this man there would be power and deliverance and victory. In other words, this child being born at this era of history was really a great light on the horizon, a, a, a light of hope for the people. And so in verse 24 of uh, uh, Judges 13, Samson is born. The woman gave birth to a son, named him Samson. child grew up, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. The Spirit of the Lord would come upon people in the Old Testament. He didn't permanently indwell them, but he would come upon them for special measure of service. And here was this young boy who, who had this, these remarkable powers which came from God. And the ministry of Samson began right there. Now right here, I want to just point something out to you. There are three things involved in the presumption of Samson. He first of all forgot something. Secondly, he forfeited something. Thirdly, he failed. 
as the sin of presumption always ultimately brings failure. Now let's talk for a minute about this matter of what he forgot. Rather, you see, the story of Samson would take three or four weeks, and I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to give you the outline. But I want you to understand there's several things that he forgot. In regard to, to forgetting, let's put down all three things here that he forgot. First of all, he forgot the secret of his power. Secondly, he forgot the source of his power. And thirdly, he forgot the sacredness of his power. Right? Now, putting this together, the first thing that we want to see that he forgot was the secret of his power. Verse 13, or chapter 13, beginning to look at verse 5. Now, just watch what it says. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, just look at that. He is a Nazarite, all right? This is part of the secret of his power. If there's any power in his life, it's because he has been set aside as holy to the Lord. Verse 7. But he said to me, speaking of the, the husband now, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and I shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. See that? Look at verse 24. And the woman gave birth to the son and named him Samson. The child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Now you see the connection? He is a Nazarite set apart by God. And the, the woman bore him, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. You see, the secret of his power was that God had set him aside for a special purpose. He didn't lift Olympic free weights or have a nautilus gym in his home. He didn't get big, huge muscles so that he was uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Samson wasn't like that. He's not like he's depicted by the artists at all. There's only one reason that he could lift the city gates off their hinges and kill a lion and, and kill uh, the, the thousands of Philistines. Only one reason. And that was because he was dependent upon God's power, and he forgot that. He thought he could do as he pleased. It wouldn't matter. So he forgot the secret of his power from God. He forgot that he was dependent upon daily obedience and dedication to God. God never said you're just naturally going to have all these powers. He said you're a Nazarite. And it's connected directly to the vows that you've made. All right? Secondly, he forgot the source of his power. 1325, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. 146, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. 1419, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Chapter 15 and verse 14, and when, uh, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Now, you know, I think, of the, I think of the Apostle Paul and the fact that he said, I am what I am, how? By the grace of God. It's not me, it's God. That is the source of his power. But more than that, he forgot the sacredness, sacredness of his power. From the very beginning, if you know the life of Samson, you know that he flaunted that power. 
He flouted the power that God had given him. He used that power to fulfill his own desires. He used it for revenge. He used it to get even. He used it to get wives. He used it to, to, to have his own way. And you know, you can't do that. A lot of people are given a spiritual gift. Instead of using it for God, they use it. The gift that God has given them, they prostitute it by using it for secular means rather than for God. God gives you the gift of giving. He blesses you abundantly, gives you money so that you can exercise that gift. And in your carnality, you don't give it to God, you reinvest it. Is it any wonder you lose it? You don't play fast and loose with God. God's judgment comes upon the presumptuous man. And you know, we're very, very liable for this very same thing. You see, we have power. If you forget presumptuously the secret of our power, if you forget that the source of our power is, the, is God the Holy Spirit, if you forget the sacredness of that power, it's never to be prostituted. You are called with a high calling, with a sacred calling. Any special enabling you have is an enabling from God. You're a chosen vessel. You're a called saint. And if you prostitute your gifts, if you prostitute your abilities, your talents, and begin to use them for something other than God intended, sooner or later, the judgment will come upon you simply because you know what you've done? You've despised the word of the Lord. You've blasphemed God. God does not play games. He doesn't give you those things just so you can have your own way and do your own thing. And he forgot that. And if you forget that, you'll be guilty of the sin of presumption. Second thing is he forfeited some things. He forfeited, first of all, let's put it this way. I put it down here. I put those two close together. Make it an A. He desired his own sin. B. He delighted himself. C. He divulged his secret. Now look, first of all, at how he forfeited by desiring his sin. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Pharisees. So he came back, told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now stop right there a moment. The lust of his eyes took, a hold, took hold. He saw a woman and he wanted her. As simple as that. He saw her and he wanted her. Now that could be nothing but lust. Couldn't be anything else. Love at first sight is always eros love, sexual love, physical desire. Can never be anything else. You, you do not find true love, love at first sight. You might think somebody looks good, that's fine, that's legitimate. But I'll tell you this right now, that is only lust. Okay? It's only a desire. Maybe a legitimate desire, or maybe an inordinate desire. In his case, it was inordinate desire, as we see later. The lust of his eyes took hold. Now, I want you to say, I want you to see something right here. It is not consistent, absolutely inconsistent, 
with the purposes of God for a person to have sin in his life and have power for very long. God sometimes, in spite of a man, will allow the power to linger. But it is not consistent with the purposes of God or his own character for a man to have sin in his life, unconfessed, undealt with, and have the blessing of God in his life for very long. And Samson wanted his sin and the power. It's not that Samson didn't want the power. He enjoyed cleaning up on these Philistines. But he wanted both the power and the sin. There are very few pastors who get involved in sexual sin who say, well, what I was really trying to do is blow my ministry. That's not what they're trying to do. No, no. They want their ministry and their sin too. And when they get caught in their sin, they forfeit their ministry and they say, oh, I wish there was something I could do to undo what I've done. Sorry, there isn't. That was Samson's problem. He that covers his sin shall not prosper. Can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned? It would be ridiculous. So the first thing was desiring his sin. Secondly, delighting himself. It says in the end of verse 2, Now therefore get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives? This is an unequal yoke. Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all the people that you should take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. Isn't that sweet? I don't care who she is or whether she's a believer or who she, what, what she says or does or whether she cusses and swears or what, exactly what's involved, whether she's an idol worshiper or whether she loves God. It doesn't make any particle of difference to me. She looks good. That's all I care about. What an attitude, see? He delighted himself. I want to tell you something right now. There is a lost theology today. If I tell you what I'm talking about, right away you're going to say, what do you mean lost? Because a lot of people talk about it. But not very many people do anything about it. The lost theology is the theology that even Christ did not please himself. If he'd pleased himself, we would have gone to hell. He did not please himself. He set the example, if you please, of self-denial. And I'll tell you, there is a whole little bit today, a microcosm of self-denial in the church today. How do you evaluate your missionary giving? When was the last time when you decided, you know, I really need that. I really want that new car or that new refrigerator or whatever is necessary. And it's not that you really need it. It's just that you kind of want it, all right? And you look at that and you say to yourself, I really want that. But you know, boy, the missionaries could use that money. And so you don't buy it. You literally, you just absolutely say, no, we're going to do with what we got. We're going to give the money to the missionaries. When was the last time you really did that? Now, you maybe did. Praise the Lord for you if you did. But we don't have very much self-denial today. And yet it's clearly a theology that in, is in the Scripture. And we all understand it theologically. There's just a, a precious little of doing it, of making any real sacrifice. 
See, in the days of the Depression, when people didn't have much, they would give a few dollars to God and not eat for a week. And we don't have that problem. But we don't give to God proportionately near as well. When was the last time you ever missed a meal because you gave the money away to the Lord? Wouldn't hurt any of us, would it? Here's a man delighting himself. Christ denied himself. Which do you do? Okay. The third thing is he divulged his secret. Chapter 16, verses 4 through 19. I want you to look at it. You know the story, so I'm not going to read it all. But what I want you to see is his presumption. It says in verse 16, let's start right there. Or, well, let's start in verse 15. This is so romantic. Then she said to him, after he'd faked her out a few times, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? This is Delilah speaking. You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. And it came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. Now there's a nagging woman, I'll tell you. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now do you hear what he said? If that happens, after she has has gone ahead and done the things that he'd suggested three times. Here the number four is the capper because he tells her the truth and when he tells her the truth he says, I'll lose my strength when my hair goes. Now listen to this. When Delilah saw that he had told her that all was in his heart, he, she sent, called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up once more for he has told me all his heart. The lord of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands and she made him sleep on her knees called for a man, had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. But the next verse is the cork... Uh, no, yeah, the next one is the corker. He said, she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. He awoke from his sleep and said... Now, what did he just say? Remember what he just said? If you cut off my hair, what's going to happen? What is it? His strength will leave, Right? You cut off my hair, my strength will leave. Now look at this one. He gets up, his hair's gone. He says, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. And he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Presumption. He thought, you know, the secret of my strength is in the locks of my hair. The hair is cut off. The Nazarite vow is broken clearly. Now, if I do that, I'll lose my strength. Hey, look, would God really do that? After all, God really wants to use me, doesn't he? And I'm his only boy. God's not going to forfeit the whole thing that he's planned all of this time because of a dumb thing like the length of your hair. Certainly he's not going to do that. But what happened? He didn't have a clue. He went out to try to fight and he was helpless. Because his strength was not in his muscles. His strength was in the power of God that had come upon him. 
And it's a tragic circumstance when people think they can flaunt the power of God, that they can do as they please, and that God will go right on blessing them, that they can go out there and just use their own understanding and despise the Word of God and blaspheme Him by their life and by their conduct and get away with it, because you're not going to get away with it. The day will come where you won't even know it, but your strength will be gone. Now, the failure comes in five forms. It says in verse 21 that, they, that he was beaten. He got whipped. First time in his life. But he got beaten. Beaten by the Philistines. They were able to seize him. Secondly, he was blinded. They gouged out his eyes. Verse 21. Third thing was, he was bound They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains. Then he was burdened and did grind. He was a grinder in the prison like a common ox. Finally, you jump down to verse 31, he was buried. He died. He died in glory because God allowed him to have his strength once more to pull down the temple of the Philistines upon the Philistines, but he was buried. Beaten, blinded, bound, burdened, buried. That's the legacy that the presumptuous person leaves behind. And I'll guarantee you something. You sin presumptuously. You despise the word of the Lord. You blaspheme against God. And I'll tell you right now, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. You cannot live presumptuously forever. Sooner or later, it'll catch up with you. And you will find yourself blinded and bound and all of the rest of it. You'll find yourself buried. Because God will not, I repeat, He will not neglect to bring judgment ultimately upon the person who insists on despising His word and blaspheming His name by living their lives contrary to Scripture. And we can slip into that so easily. It becomes the habit of our life to just say, oh well, what I think is as good as what the Bible says. We wouldn't say that out loud, but we live that way. And when we do, look out. Don't sin against light. Don't sin against light. If you know these things, Christ said, happy are you if you, what? Do them. Do them. Thank you, Father, for this time. Now, Lord, in these next few moments, minister to our hearts as Dave comes and just shares with us those things that are upon his heart. We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.